Greg Dennison. He is the pastor of Faith Bible Church in Spearfish, South Dakota. He and his men really have traveled the furthest distance to be here. We're so grateful for those guys. And he's going to be coming to lead scripture, uh, read scripture and pray in a few minutes. First, Adam and the team are going to lead us in a few hymns. We'll start in page eight in your program there. Come Christians, join to sing. I'd like to invite you to open to Philippians chapter 2 for our reading of Scripture this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we come before you this morning first to give you praise to give you thanks. You are our God. You are the sovereign Lord who reigns where every knee will bow. Father, we come before you to give thanks that we don't have to work for our salvation, but work it out. We don't have to work for our salvation because you have done the work for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him, 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing, being God, to not hold on to the glories of heaven, to the majesty of your glory, to the exercise of your righteousness in the heavenly realms of glory, and you emptied yourself. You were found as a bond slave made in the likeness of men. You are obedient, obedient in life and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you would humble yourself all the way down to death on a cross. We thank you. It's because of this that we don't have to work for our salvation. You've done the work for us, that in your perfect life of obedience, you have imputed to us a perfect life of righteousness and you treat us as Jesus Christ, righteous. And by your death, you have borne the full payment that we could never pay for our sins. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you've been highly exalted And that through your resurrecting power and your resurrection, your life, it's because you live, we live also, and you've given us new life. We thank you. We give you praise. But we also, Father, we also bow the knee of our hearts this morning and we confess. We confess our failure. We confess that we have not had the attitude of Christ. We confess our pride We confess that we've not had the attitude of humility and it's fleshed out in our actions. Lord, we confess our failure in our personal devotion. We confess our failure to not have that attitude in our homes, with our wives, with our children. We confess that we have failed in the attitude of Christ in the church, in our service. We have pursued service with empty conceit and vain glory oftentimes, Lord. We confess our failure and we come to the cross this morning. Lord, we also, as we confess and repent, we ask, Lord God, that you would enable us to be those lights in this perverse generation that we would become those lights, that we would glow with your glory as we become low and humble. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking to rob your glory. God, help us to get low that your glory might shine through us in this wicked generation. And God, we do pray that you would unite our hearts, that you would encourage our hearts this evening, that we would be one in spirit and purpose, and that would be for the glory of your name and the declaration of your gospel. Lord, we ask that your word would edify and build us up this morning, and that, Lord, we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers, that we would leave this gathering, this encouragement, this edification change, Lord. Help us to diligently put on the principles that we will hear this this day, that you would receive all the glory in your church. In Christ's name, I pray, and all God's people said, amen. It's my privilege to introduce Ron Frasco to you this morning. 
He's going to come and bring the word. You may have read his uh, bio in the guide. He's an elder and pastor at Providence Bible Church just up the road in Fort Collins, Colorado. He, a church he planted 17 years ago. Faithful man. He's the epitome of faithfulness and strength. He's married to Barbara, 25 years married. Uh, they have two children, TJ and Emily, and he's also, in his spare time, administrates a K-12 through school. Uh, he also coaches baseball. He's quite the baseball aficionado, uh, something he'll talk to you all day about if you want to, uh, tell you all about um, uh, everything you want to know. And, and some, evidently, he told us last night that that's, that's actually the mark of true manliness right there, is to know baseball. He's, uh, he's not going to tell you this, but it's really been his vision and uh, his foresight to see this conference come together. Uh, he's been uh, praying for this for many years and talking about it for years. So we're really, we owe a debt of gratitude to Ron for all the work he's done in this area for 17 faithful years. And we're looking forward to what you teach us this morning, brother. Ron, please come bring the word. Welcome him, will you? I want to just acknowledge, just even as Travis said, how this came about. This is absolutely amazing to me. I've walked with my brother, Greg Dennison, for 12 or 13 years, um, just watched him grow and flourish in his own ministry. We love the folks at Spearfish, and let me explain, we keep referring to this conference as a northern Colorado thing, a, a work of God that God's doing in this region. We have just gone ahead and annexed South Dakota. <laughs> and then uh, in time, uh, the Lord crossed uh, my path with my brother Moses Estrada out in Hillrose, and it was one year ago uh, that I had the privilege to preach out in Hill Rose, and I sat with Moses' elders and deacon, and we just kind of began to surmise and talk about something that Moses and I had talked about at lunch, getting our men together. <laughs> and what we envisioned, really, truly, I said, you know what, I know there would have to be a church in Greeley that would loan us a room maybe rent, and I envisioned this dark, dimly lit room with hard chairs, sitting around uh, with brothers in solid fellowship, and so this whole thing is just amazing to me. And then at last Shepherd's Conference, he wouldn't let it die. Russ from Hillrose, it's his fault. Where is he? It's Russ's fault because at Shepherd's Conference, we're all in this room, again having fellowship together, and he, he kept bringing up this idea of a mini Shepherd's Conference. Well, we wanted to stay away from the name, but honestly, that's what this is. And then the last piece of the puzzle, Travis and the generous saints here at Grace have just been amazing this week. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then one of the pieces of uh, 
icing on the cake, if you will, is my brother Russ from Hillrose, uh, Russ from, pardon me, Wellington. The Lord is just blanketing this northern Colorado region, and I'll talk to you more about that as we close today. But to, to just see faithful men dig in and to begin to put down roots and build into people's lives and build in the men's lives. I shared some time ago, that is the hope of our nation. And to see what God is doing through the churches in this region, uh, just as thrilling, isn't it? I wanted to take advantage of this incredible turnout with all the men in this room uh, to tell you about an opportunity I didn't run this past Travis, but I think you'll be okay with it. It's a job opportunity, kind of a help-wanted deal. I figured networking would maybe do the deal. Let me take a minute to tell you about it. The boss is absolutely amazing, the most generous, the most patient of all. The work varies from day to day, and because of that, I promise you will never be bored. Guys always want to ask me when I present something like this, is there travel required? Honestly, there may be. You'll be working with people. It's kind of a service industry thing. And admittedly, the people that you'll be serving can be a real pain in the neck sometimes. But in the end, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. The pay, it's out of this world. Heavenly rewards. I'll have applications available at the end. Just see me or any of the pastors. We come in John 13 to one of the most poignant and profound moments in all the history of mankind. In John chapter 13, we come up to the very edge of the culmination of God's great plan of redemption. Within hours, Jesus Christ will take sinner's burden to himself as he is taken to the cross. But now, in these solemn hours that proceed, John records as Jesus closes out his earthly ministry in as profound a manner as he introduced him. As we hold the synoptic gospels in relief, we discover that in this section is one of the most fascinating in that great discipline of the study of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke walk deliberately through every detail of Christ's journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. At the temple, the second temple cleansing, multiple parables, the Olivet Discourse, the exposure of Judas's crime, and the grand capstone of that section, the institution of the Lord's Supper. For perspective. Think this through. Those details are presented in six chapters of Matthew's gospel, chapters 21 through 26. 
one might almost feel as if John's gospel is somehow inferior at this point, since it's missing so much of this important material. Six chapters of only sparse detail or near silence in John's gospel. But John hastens to get to the upper room. It's almost as if he's in a hurry to get to this detail that none of the other synoptic writers present, to provide five chapters of his own intimate details. Here's some more perspective. John's first 12 chapters detail almost three years of public ministry, whereas John chapters 13 through 17 are concentrated on one evening. In addition to this chapter, chapter 13, consider the richness of what God has provided in the gospel report in these chapters. Discourses about the Trinity, chapter 14, the vine and the branches and the opposition of the world, chapter 15, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection, chapter 16, capped with the high priestly prayer, chapter 17. No wonder that as one faithful shepherd put it, in every age the contents of these chapters have been justly regarded as one of the most precious parts of the Bible. As John chapter 13 opens, Jesus Christ, God's provision for man's sinfulness, is preparing for the culmination of God's great plan of redemption and His key role in it. In just hours, He will be facing the injustice, the hypocrisy, the degradation of arrest, false accusation, trial, and ultimately crucifixion, but for now. But for now, in these few and fleeting moments, there is this last quiet evening with His most ardent followers, the disciples, the apostles themselves. They are gathered together for what we now commonly refer to as the Last Supper. But the disciples don't know that. They don't know the significance of this night, and that's what makes this scene all the more dramatic. Here is Christ, together with them, but largely alone in His own thoughts as He prepares to face His passion. Would you read along with me? John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come, back, come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside His garments. And taking a towel, He girded Himself about. Then He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, 
And he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are all clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as, as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus Christ calls his disciples to himself in this solemn moment. As he prepares for the cross, as he re prepares to redeem all mankind, and they prepare to sit down to this dinner. There was no little discussion over whether this is the Passover or not. Some got very hung up on that little phrase, before the feast of the Passover, and suggested that that meant that this is an entirely separate occasion. I don't think that it's a difficult equation to think through. There are some challenges as you work your way through that discussion. I'm not going to take the time to do the math this morning, except to say this is in concert with not only the celebration of the Passover, but also the Last Supper. John doesn't go into it. John doesn't detail it. John doesn't even mention the Last Supper. But this is the scene. This is the setting. What John means when he says before the Passover is likely immediately before. Immediately before they go into the more formal mode. One pastor said it this way, that the supper is here the same described as the synoptics is beyond question. The time when the Last Supper was celebrated, whether it was a true Passover feast or one which preceded and anticipated it, is confessedly one of the most difficult questions in biblical chronology. Now, that's what you want to read when you're preparing one of three sermons, you know, two weeks before the conference. That's what you want to read. It all comes down to the way days were accounted, basically. Some people looked at 
counting of days from dawn to dawn, and others looked at it from sunset to sunset, and it dials in perfectly if you just apply that thinking to the passage. This is the Passover setting. And while John doesn't address those things, that is the moment. That is the occasion. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father. The Lord Jesus is fully aware of the significance of this hour. It is His hour. It is the time marked out for the fulfillment of His mission as Redeemer. It is that point in time in which God sovereignly marked out as the precise moment of man's redemption. Hundreds of years in this unfolding plan of redemption now come down to the ticking of a clock. And Jesus Christ is not caught by surprise. He knows not only the timing of His mission, but the success of it, that He would depart and return to the Father. Look again at verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That is the great anthem. If you will, that is the title to this entire chapter. He loved them to the end. The love of Christ for the lost, something we talk about and talk about frequently. We ought to. It ought to be more talked about than our love of Him because that followed the love of Christ was far more practical than our love of Him. The love of Christ sent Him to the cross on our behalf. And having loved His disciples and shown them uh, His love in practical terms, walking with them, exercising patience with them, instructing them, practically loving them, it says that He loved them to the end. He walked right up to the very end. And in this chapter where we see such a shocking display of reciprocation by His own beloved friends, we begin to see just the greatness of Christ's love. Look at verse 2, if you would. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Ju Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He'd come forth from God and was going back to God. Okay, now check this out. Watch this. Verses 2 and 3 are all context. There isn't even a subject or anything even like a pronoun until verse 4. He rose. Some of your translations have that word Jesus inserted in italics, mind you, in verse 3. It's not there, not in the original. It's all context. John is referring to Christ here, but note the context. It comes in waves, four of them, during supper. Like the King James incorrectly translated as supper being ended, it wasn't over. In fact, it's just getting started. Supper having arrived, supper is served, it's dinner time. 
Later verses make it very clear that this is the beginning of the dinner. John 13, 26, Jesus answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. They were still at the table. Look at the second wave of context. The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. It was at that very moment, the mechanism was already in place. Judas had already made the deal. Look at the third wave, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus Christ. He knew the success of His mission already. He knew that one day before Him, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Father had given to Him all things. And then the fourth wave of context that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, it was exactly that that was in his mind, that he was returning to glory, glory at the right hand of the heavenly Father. And then we come to verse 4. Now, mind you, I think that sometimes even the way that we read the Scriptures can obscure the meaning, the significance. We miss so much because we're not careful to pick up the sense and the, the theme, the mood of the moment. Verse 4 begins with what one referred to, the natural language of an astonished and admiring eyewitness. This is an eyewitness account. This is the Apostle John, sitting there at the table watching this unfold. And I think that here John even gives us a hint of the powerfulness of this moment. These short, pithy sentences delivered with a pause at the end of each, just as each aspect was processed by this eyewitness. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That's how we read it. That's not how it was written. This was written with pain. He, that is Jesus Christ, rose from supper. What is he doing? And he laid aside his garment. What on earth is he doing? And taking a towel, he girded himself about. This is strange. What is Jesus doing? Then he poured water into the basin and a sigh, an inward groan as they begin to realize what Jesus is doing. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, and by now there was almost certain weeping. Weeping of shame. And to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Let me explain just a bit about such dinners. There were these long, low tables surrounded on three sides by couches. 
guests would gather around these tables and usually lie on one side, leaning on their elbow. And so you were in very close proximity to one another, even as some of the details of this evening will be presented. So it's time for dinner. The preparations have all been made. Everyone is present. It's time. Please take your places. But no sooner are they settled around the table, Jesus rises to his feet. And if this happens at our home, we assume that someone forgot the salt. Or perhaps there's a door ajar. And he proceeds to do what should have been done when they first came into the house or the room. He proceeds to wash his friend's feet. Let me say a word or two about this practice. It was not a religious ritual. It was practical. For the most part in that day, people wore a a very open sandal covering only the soles of the feet. The roads were rarely paved, so any foot travel would involve a lot of walking on dusty, dry roads. And you guessed it, that led to dirty feet. Foot washing was a very practical practice. It wasn't religious. For anyone hosting a party or in this particular situation, a dinner, it was a mark of basic courtesy to provide for this particular need. A host would certainly provide the water and basins and towels for such. Depending on the host's economic standing, he might even provide a servant, a slave, to help with that process. On even rarer occasions, a host would assist his guests personally, a family, mother-in-law, close friends. The problem on this particular night is there was no host, not a particular host, and hence there was no servant. Jesus and his disciples were on their own. And so John records that Jesus laid aside his garments, his outer garment, if you will. For us, it would be akin to our outer shirt. He pulled off the long, loose shirt down to the equivalent of a t-shirt. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself about literally around his waist, whether it was secured with a belt and tucked in or tied literally around his waist as a towel. He was fully dressed now to do a slave's work. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Now, as I understand the practice, they would not put the feet actually into the water of the basin, but rather the servant would hold the foot and would pour the water over the foot, let the water wash over the foot into the basin, and then to complete the process, the slave would gently wipe and dry each foot. And the process was continued one by one, guest by guest until they had all been served in that way. And so Jesus is proceeding with this very necessary and practical task, disciple by disciple, moving along likely on his knees, washing feet, until suddenly there was a problem. And it shouldn't surprise us, the problem was Peter. 
And so he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And it's plainly evident here that Peter wasn't the first one to have his feet washed. We're given no information about the order, who was first, who was last. Now in the original, the position of these simple pronouns captures a very important nuance here. Literally, you of me wash the feet? Are you going to wash my feet? As we saw, only the most intimate family circles would a superior ever, a patriarch, a ruler, wash another's feet? And the obvious question to be asked, is Peter now, just now going to express his humility? Because as Jesus will go on to address, humility, if it's expressed before the Lord only, is not true humility. Peter may not be too keen on the idea of the Lord Jesus washing his feet, but where was his humility when they walked into the room? Peter's impetuous behavior, so much a part of his character, actually suggests that he knows better than the Lord. He's humble enough to see the incongruous nature of what Jesus is doing, but he's not humble enough to hold his tongue. In essence, he says, are you crazy? What are you doing? Jesus answered and said to him, and note the gentleness of our Savior. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Now, many suggested that Jesus is referring to some time in the future, a week, a month, or years after his resurrection. But the word is very indefinite. Peter and all the disciples are going to have a much clearer understanding of what Jesus is doing in about seven minutes. And so Jesus insists that Peter exercise patience until he provides that perspective. But Peter can't do it. Verse 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. That's strong language. And it's even stronger considering the one to whom he's speaking, never. Never? He tells the Lord Jesus Christ, basically, look, there's no way this is going to happen. If you want, revert back to Peter's first words. Remember that? You are not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus, remember, is washing literal feet. It's important here. And the feet are literally dirty. And he's doing so because no one else has been humble enough in themselves to do it. Jesus is going to do this. And so in so doing, he is correcting, he is instructing, he is calling, even rebuking his disciples. They cannot be above this kind of correction. Jesus is not for a minute here saying that foot washing is a new institution, an ordinance. 
He's absolutely not saying that having one's feet washed is essential for salvation. He's not saying that. Rather, what Jesus points to here is the ongoing work of God that a saved man craves sanctification. If you won't submit to this correcting, it's proof that you already have no part of me. And Peter and all of the disciples have been revealed in significant sin, the sin of pride. And unless Jesus has the freedom to reveal that and call them to repentance, even until the day a man is glorified, he has no part in Christ. A man who thinks that he has arrived spiritually thinking that there's no more work to be done in his life, who thinks that not even God can call him into account and repentance, is already modeling an unregenerate attitude. Well, that gets Peter's attention, doesn't it? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And well, we would imagine that if the basin were only deep enough, Peter would have already hurled himself in. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus is washing literal feet. Did I say that? Jesus is washing literal feet. And feet that are literally dirty, but he's doing so because no one else has had the humility to do it. But now here suddenly, Jesus makes a metaphorical application to the process of salvation. Basically, what he says is this, once a man has been saved, once he's placed his faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he is justified before God. He's saved, but he's not yet completely sanctified. That's a work that God is in process accomplishing in a believer's life, and Jesus says that's akin to this foot washing. He says to Peter, look, if you've already repented of your sin, essentially, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have bathed, but you still have dirty feet. You now stand before God, holy and righteous and forgiven, but you still have need every day of dealing with your sin. You don't need to rush home and take a bath. You don't need to be saved all over again every time you sin. A saved man who sins doesn't lose his salvation. You need a spiritual foot washing is what Jesus tells him. And the question with which Peter must wrestle now is, is Jesus allowed to address his abiding sin? May I ask you, is Jesus Christ allowed to address your own? Look at the end of verse 10. One of the most sad features of this entire narrative, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs to wash only his feet, but is completely clean, and you are, all, you are clean, but not all of you. A forecast about Judah, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. One of the most astounding things of this entire section is here sits Judas. 
and Jesus washes his feet, and he still doesn't repent of his sin. Sin is an impossibly powerful grip. We press on into verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And I get the sense of this scene, not one of them dared raise their hand. Not one of them dared venture a conjecture like we might do during a Sunday school class. Jesus! Verse 13, Jesus immediately launches into the lesson, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. Those are ordinary titles of respect. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do, also do as I did to you. Please note what Jesus does here. He doesn't issue or downplay the titles they have applied to him. He is the Lord. They are appropriate. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is not only the Lord because they have determined him to be such, he is the Lord by God's sovereign appointment. And if the Lord was willing to humble himself and to wash their feet, they ought to be willing to do likewise. That word ought is a powerful word. It speaks of obligation. It is used of financial debts. And it's a directly personal responsibility that he urges upon them. Basically, Jesus says here that because of their salvation, if I may, because of our salvation, we owe a debt of gratitude. We owe a debt of humble service to others because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We sing this song all the time, don't we? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We walk out and we behave just like the disciples did. Jesus closes with a little bit of motivation. I said Jesus closes. I didn't say I was closing. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. Four times in the Gospels, that same phrase is used, driving home the point of Jesus Christ's greatness and his humility, not only taking on human flesh, not only taking on the form of a bondservant, but taking on the attire of bondservant, not only taking on the attire of bondservant, but getting down on his knees and serving like a slave. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That is the great principle of Christianity, isn't it? Put a lot of stock in head knowledge. And we tend not to put a whole lot in practical application of that knowledge. What he says here is God does tend to bless obedience. And so you say, so this is great Guys are going to set up bowls as they walk out of the church and they're going to wash my bunions. What is this deal? What is this all about, this foot washing thing? And for what purpose? What do we do with this? Is it a perpetual institution? Should we go back to our churches and start a new ordinance like baptism and the Lord's Supper and foot washing? 
It has been historically practiced in the church, not until the fourth century, very sparingly. A few denominations over the course of church history, I can tell you the one time that I've ever seen this appropriately modeled was during a wedding. What a beautiful thing to see a husband get down on his knees and wash his wife's feet. The brother's here today. And I asked him last night, I said, are you still washing your wife's feet? He smiled because he knew where I was going with it. He knew, he knew what foot washing meant. It was symbolic in his wedding that he was entering into a life of service to his wife, a life of humble service. He smiled. He is still washing her feet, so to speak. No, Jesus wasn't instituting a new religious ritual. Instead, it was a living parable. It was meant to instruct them. It was meant to correct them, even rebuke their pride, and to extol the need of humble service. It was an example to be followed. The bottom line is if our service our efforts, our ministry is truly done as unto the Lord, as unto Christ, then it is indeed not only an active act of worship, it is a fragrant aroma to God. I want to give you three particulars of ministry that honors God. We derive them right from the pages of what Jesus says. First of all, Christ-like service is self-sacrificing. It is by nature inconvenient. Look at the passage, verse 2. During supper. What? It's absolutely crucial that you savor that detail. Look back at verse 2. During supper. During supper? That was the whole point of this. We don't even get up and answer the phone during dinner at our house. Jesus certainly could have done this service, making the same point. Now, mind you, men, as you come into the house, would you gather here? We should wash each other's feet. He could have done that at the start. And he could have done it at the very end. You know, we just went through an entire dinner without having our feet washed. He didn't do it at the beginning, and he didn't do it at the end. He did it during the meal. And he did it for two reasons. One was to wait until the last possible moment to show the disciples their proud oversight of this simple duty, because you know how it would have gone. If Jesus did it at the door, they're, oh yeah, I was going to do that. <laughs> this is something the host would do as the guests walked into the home. But now it's long past due and the disciples should have done this. Now their pride is confirmed, and that's not my judgment, that's Christ's. Christ's rebuke was not of their slovenliness, it's not of their bad manners, it was for their proud refusal to serve one another. No sin, said J.C. Ryle, is so offensive to God and so injurious to the soul as pride. None of them showed any effort because they had no intention of serving anyone, including Christ. Shocking. When Jesus Christ rose from the table and knelt to wash their feet, it was a severe rebuke of their pride. 
The other reason that Jesus did it at this time is he wanted to provide an enduring example that service is by nature inconvenient. It was to be done before the meal, traditionally, not during the meal. We in our Western mind can hardly wrap our minds around this practice, can we? But especially in the context of a formal dinner, the very idea of deliberately moving from guest to guest, on your knees, washing feet, and then returning to dinner, utterly shocking. Ministry is hard, men. It's hard, and it's dirty, and it's painful, and it's challenging, and it's frustrating. And much of the time, it is just plain inconvenient. I've never met a man yet who has a heart attack at a convenient time. The opportunities come at difficult times. They involve difficult circumstances. They involve difficult people. Paul said it this way, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Point two, act like men and serve as Christ served. Do you want to know the particulars of ministry that honors God? Not only is it Christ-like service is self-sacrificing, but Christ-like service is self-motivating. It's the recognition and the response to an opportunity. Look at verse 5, just briefly. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Not much more practical that you can get than that. The need would have been immediately noticeable to everybody. All of the disciples should have noticed that something was missing. There was a regularity to this practice, that even when you entered a dwelling, water was provided for this specific purpose. Even if the water were present, everyone would have been immediately aware that there was no slave there for the practice. The most obvious sign would have been their own stinking, dirty feet. But even in the face of all those things, none of the disciples took the initiative to volunteer for the task, and perhaps it was just oversight 12 times, 12 different men. A more likely reality was that even if they noticed a lack of a slave, the lack of water, dirty feet, they did nothing about it. What we do know is that the Lord Jesus waited patiently and silently, all the while seeing the inaction, and then he moved. Here was perhaps one last time, a truly teachable moment to drive home this point to his disciples. He had addressed the problem of pride before, and now here is his last best chance to drive home the point for perpetuity. We don't know to what degree we should attach sinister motives to these men. Were they already quibbling? Or perhaps uh, over perhaps who sat where? According to Luke's gospel, a very uncomfortable discussion takes place in this context. There also arose a dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. That's the problem, isn't it? Luke says that this argument occurred after dinner. Some felt as if Luke's order is dislocated and had to have taken place before dinner. 
But remember, this is one of the reasons why some of the, some of the commentators took the position that John here can't be talking about the Passover. Because how on earth, after a rebuke like this, could they go on and have a discussion like that? You know what I say to that? Check your own life. We do it all the time. Believe me that we have the capacity to sin upon sin, even in the face of correction. But before dinner, after dinner, you know what? It doesn't matter. The sickness was in their hearts. It's in our hearts. How sad that Jesus alone noticed this very needy service. How sad that none of his friends offered to wash anyone's feet, including his, sad and shameful. And so Jesus gets up from dinner and washes their dirty, stinking feet. It was a rebuke. It was a rebuke of their pride, a rebuke of their inaction. Can we begin to fathom the depth of their shame as the Lord Jesus Christ dressed down, degraded His outer appearance with slaves' clothes, and went man to man on His knees washing feet? There is no doubt that as Jesus worked His way in your direction, that if you were the last, you would be sickened with grief by the time He got to you. You should. Look, let's face it. This was a disgusting job. It really shouldn't surprise us to find reluctance to take up this task. It's not as if feet were, were not as bad back then, you know? They had the same calluses, the same scales. I've seen your feet. The same toe jam, must I even say it, the same smell? Try this. These were, for the most part, fishermen's feet, the worst kind. Wet, slimy, water-wrinkled feet, and then to put them in sandals, walk them untold miles in hot, dusty footpaths, yeah, maybe they weren't so bad. If Jesus Christ washed fishermen's feet, is there any task too low for us to perform? Let me put it in perspective. Consider the feet of the men here this morning, including your own. Feet that were likely washed this morning with the finest soaps, possibly even treated with lotion or cream or whatever it is you use. Foot powder in the shoe placed delicately into a cotton sock, into nice leather shoes to come here all this way to the conference. You know what? Not only would you be disinclined to wash other men's feet like that, because of your vanity, you would likely jump out of the line and run quickly to get a mani-pedi. Don't tell me that you don't know what that is. You would go get your feet all done up in order to get back in line so that your feet wouldn't look as disgusting as everybody else's. Here's my point. Self-motivation not only recognizes a need, but it wastes no time in taking action to remedy that need. The disciples are all likely, they all likely recognize the need. They just didn't do anything about it. There are lots of needs 
The trouble is that we condition ourselves to ignore them. We convince ourselves that it isn't our responsibility, that somehow we're exempted from that particular duty. Jesus told the disciples at another occasion, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Act like men and serve as Christ served. How did He serve? Christ-like service is self-sacrificing. Christ-like service is self-motivating. And third and finally, Christ-like service is self-denying. This this point is absolutely shocking to me. And so, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, did you miss it? None of the disciples had taken the initiative to wash anybody else's feet. None of the disciples joined Christ in the service. If there was ever a time to pitch in, wouldn't that have been it? But the shocking one None of the disciples reciprocated. None of them said, Lord, I, I am so sorry. I, I am so sorry for my pride. Could, could I wash your feet? None of them. You say, well, I would have washed their feet, maybe. I would have washed Jesus' feet for sure, maybe. Would you have washed your brother's feet? because that's what Christ was asking them. In Matthew chapter 25, there is a painful section, isn't there? I'll take just the positive portion of that Scripture. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And in the passage at hand, my feet were dirty and you washed them. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? The king will say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Will we serve Christ? The question is, will we serve our brothers? It does our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, no difficulty. We know that He was absolutely sinless. It does our Christology, no difficulty to acknowledge that his feet likely were as dirty as the rest of his fellow slaves. In fact, you may recall that when the sinful woman anointed Christ's feet, wiping her feet, his feet with her hair, criticized by the Pharisees, do you know what his reply was? You gave me no water for my feet. Jesus Christ acknowledged his own dirty feet. Remember this foot washing here in John 13 was first and foremost practical, and only secondarily was it symbolic of the removal of sin. Jesus Christ had no need of a spiritual cleansing of any degree. That's part and parcel of His indictment of the disciples. They didn't even wash Jesus' feet. They didn't initiate the process. They didn't reciprocate 
And Jesus didn't stew about it. He didn't pace back and forth waiting for someone to step up and wash his feet. He served and he sat. And so should we. We wait too often for committees to form. We wait too often for help. I couldn't find any help. Christ-like service is self-denying. And if you're not willing to serve alone, you're not willing to serve. Brothers, we come to a most gracious Master who has already paid for our sin on the cross. We stand before Christ having undergone a most radical change of position. Should we serve our families? Absolutely, let's be servants of our families. Should we serve our earthly masters? Absolutely, we should be servants in our places of work. But we cannot neglect our service to Christ in our service to His body, the church. Look for needs. Having seen that need, begin to pray. Begin to do your very best personally to meet that need. Not wrong to tell others about it. It's wrong to wait. Brainstorm. Find new ways of serving, new needs. Ask your elders. They probably have a list tucked in their Bible. Speaking of elders... The churches need elders. They need more of them. Everybody always shies away because of those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You know what? Those qualifications are qualifications of an elder. That's the starting point. Those qualifications aren't anything that all of us aren't called to be. It's not like you're exempted from those things. The church needs deacons. The church needs those who are not too busy to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you humble yourselves before Him? Our merciful King, we humble ourselves in Your glorious presence. And Lord God, we repent of our pride. We repent of those times where we stubbornly refused to do what we, we saw as a need. Lord God, we pray that you would grind this into our hearts. Change us. Make us to be the men you would have us to be. Make us to serve like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.